Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for for you as our Father and for Jesus as our Savior. We ask that your Spirit will join us this morning, enlighten our minds, draw us close to you, give us discernment at this time in history and ability to witness your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing Lesson 8 in the quarterly about Isaiah, and the title is Comfort My People. Consider the title, uh, Comfort My People. How does God comfort? What does that mean? If you were dying of cancer, would compassionate friends be a comfort? Would medicine, pain medicine, nausea medicine, competent medical care, would that be a comfort? Yes. But what would bring you the most comfort if you were dying of cancer? Healing, to put it into remission, right? Yeah. If you were a prisoner of war, would a kind guard be a comfort? Would a would good food, clean accommodations, clothing, packages and letters from home be a comfort? But what would be the most comfort? Freedom. Freedom and coming home. Wouldn't that be the most comfort? So so in this world of sin, how does God comfort? Well, he certainly comforts with loving friends and family. There's no question. Food, clothing, shelter, financial support, health care, healing of, of our of our infirmities, but does God's plan to comfort actually go far beyond this temporal existence to include healing from sin and eternal life? Isn't that the ultimate comfort? So if you think about what does it mean to be freed from sin? Is sin a molecule, a bacterium, a a piece of matter? He's got to dissect it out of your tissues. Is it, or is it sin rooted in lies that leads to a change of motivation of heart that leads to breaking trust with God? Remember, lies believed break the circle of love and trust and result in fear and selfishness. And then fear and selfishness is an internal state that's painful. Think about times you've been in fear. <clears throat> there's no peace. There's no comfort. There's no joy in this state. And fear and selfishness lead to acts of sin, which are acts of self-protection, to cope with our fear and selfishness, to make ourselves feel better. But that only makes the problem worse, and we still don't have real comfort. And that, and those acts damage our minds, our bodies, our relationships. There's no comfort or peace in this condition. But God comforts us. Comfort my people. If we've diagnosed correctly that the problem of sin or lies believe breaking the circle of love and trust resulting in that carnal nature, that fear and selfishness within, then can we see God's plan to comfort? How God removes sin? Well, how does God remove sin and selfishness from our hearts and minds and restore his law of love within? How does he do it, thereby comforting us? Well, Jesus is the key. We all know that. Jesus is the key. But what has Jesus provided that comforts us? Truth. Truth. And so in John 1, he's described as the Word made flesh. Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus is the truth made flesh. And in Jesus, we see the truth about God, which destroys lies. And the truth will Set set you free. So the first thing Jesus provides us is the truth that we need in order to have our minds break out of this infection of of, of deceit that keeps us from trusting God. So he brings us truth about God. But is that sufficient to actually comfort us? Is that it? Or do we need something more? In order for actually to have sin removed from our hearts and minds, is it only truth about who God is that's necessary? Or do we, as fallen beings, need something even more? Do we need a new heart and right spirit? Do we need to be recreated in the inner person? So we need to be one to trust, but we also need more. We need a remedy that transforms the heart. And I love this description of the book Desire of Ages, found on page 762. It says, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. Pause. It requires it. What law lens are you you hearing it through? In the olden days, days, when I was young, I would hear this law through imposed law, human law, 
And then it's the rules. The rules require it. You've got to you have to have perfect, perfect behavior. And it requires it be this way. And we can't behave perfectly. So Jesus came to, to live perfectly and then pay that price. That's how I heard that, legally. But I hear it completely different now. The law requires righteousness, a perfect life, a perfect character, in the same way that the law of respiration requires you breathe. And it is a requirement if you want to live. The law of respiration requires it. That's something, it's awfully unfair, isn't it? No, it's not unfair. And this is how life is built. Harmony with God's design laws is how he comforts us. Continue on with the quote. Uh, this man has not to give a perfect life, a righteous life, a perfect character. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ coming to earth as man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. Jesus is a human being, tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. He, ha- he felt the pull to act in self-interest, but instead he chose to love others more than self, denying the, the pull of the survival drives, perfectly uh, restoring God's design for life in the humanity that he assumed. That's why it says in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Once he was made perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? He was always sinless. Bible perfection is not actually about sinlessness. Remember it says Job was perfect and righteous in all his ways. But he was a sinner. Bible perfection is not about sinlessness. Jesus was always sinless. He had to be made perfect. Made perfect. Bible perfection is about maturity. Growing up and internalizing into one's character, being, or as Ellen White writes in other places, being so settled into the truth you can't be moved. See, God can create sinless beings, Adam and Eve and Eden, angels in heaven. God cannot create character. It requires the development by choice of the sentient being. Adam and Eve corrupted their character. Jesus, second half, came to be tempted, as we are, and to develop sinless human character. And thus he gives these to us as a perfect gift. His life stands for the life of men. He becomes the second Adam, the new head of humanity, our king, the vine to whom we can be connected and receive the indwelling new life, new heart, right spirit. Continue on with the quote. Thus we have remission of sins that are past. Our past sins are remitted through the forbearance of God, not through a payment, not through a legal action. Through God's grace. Why? Why is it remitted this way? It's the same thing. Just think of your sick child who might have had terrible vomiting and diarrhea and symptomology of all kinds, but now they're completely well. Those old symptoms matter not. They're irrelevant. The only question is, are they healthy today? That's the question. Once the law is written upon the heart and mind, the old symptoms of the unhealed heart are irrelevant. It is Satan's view that every sin must must meet its punishment. That is not reality. Sin condition must be cured, healed, removed. So the Lamb of God who came to take the punishment for our sin, as John the Baptist said, or the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin. He came to remove the, the condition. Continue on with the quote. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. Imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character. A goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Who builds up the sinner's character? You have to work really hard now. Now that you see how good God is, you have to work really hard. And you have to build it yourself. No. He builds up your character as you trust him and choose to follow him. It's a cooperative effort. He cannot build your character without your participation. But you cannot build your character on your own. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer. Right? The law in the heart and mind. Hebrews 8.10. God can be just and the justifier. Is it just and right for a God of love to 
send Jesus to reveal truth, to destroy lies and win you back to trust, and to cure the condition and provide remedy. Is that just and right? Is it the just and right thing to do? And in so doing, he puts you just or puts you right or restores you back to righteousness. He is both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. But if this is so, if this is how he destroys sin to restore us to peace, to comfort us, if this is how it works, then why is the Holy Spirit called the comforter? But he's speaking only what he hears from Christ. So Jesus actually said, I'm going I'm to go and send the comforter. He won't speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears. Who's, who's the Holy Spirit listening to? So he's listening to Jesus. Yep, that's right. As Jesus pleads. Who do you think Jesus pleads with? Yeah, who, need, who needs convincing? God needs convincing to love us, or we need convincing to trust God? Yes, and the Holy Spirit is his representative on earth. Here's another quote, same book. I'll desire of ages 671. The other was 762. This is 671. The comforter is called the spirit of truth. His work is to define and maintain the truth. He first dwells in the heart as the spirit of truth and thus becomes the comforter. There is comfort and peace in the truth. But no real peace or comfort can be found in falsehood. It is through false theories and traditions that Satan gains his power over the mind. By directing men to false standards, he misshapes the character. Do we see this happening in the world like never before today? If you understand God's design laws, how he has constructed reality to operate, his design for life, health, happiness, relationships. You can look around the world today and see corrupt false standards everywhere. And those who embrace them, we are not seeing in the world today more grace, more kindness, more compassion, more love, more liberty, more freedom, more tolerance. What we're seeing is more hate, Mm -hmm. more abuse, more control, more legislation, more intimidation, more restriction of liberty, more censoring, more silencing, more intolerance, all under the name of tolerance. (laughs) It's true. And people are blind. They cannot see the hypocrisy that's going on because they have accepted false standards. The beast in Revelation is rising for those who have eyes to see. Continuing on with the quote. Through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit speaks to the mind and impresses truth upon the heart. Thus he exposes error and expels it from the soul. See, truth understood and embraced will destroy and expel falsehood. Falsehood cannot stand up against truth if truth is actually chosen. The way falsehood lives is by denying truth, silencing voices of truth, refusing to examine the truth. That's how falsehood lives. That's why every communist government will never have a free press. They always have a controlled propaganda press because truth will destroy communism. It always does. And when you see the censors come out, Did you hear the call this week in our society here in America? Some people are calling for the new president to appoint a reality czar. And what they mean by reality czar is this person will have authority to police free speech in America, publications, media, um, online platforms, outlets, and decide whether, in fact, that's true or false. And censor it. Silence. It's not true. Correct it. Make them restate it. Take down their voice. The the media giants and the big industries are already doing this. Why do they do it? You see, uh, Ellen White wrote, the same author, years ago, the truth can afford to be fair. It loses nothing by close investigation. When you love truth, you have a heart that says, hey, I'm a finite being. Everything I currently believe today may not be the most accurate 
There may be aspects that I've got wrong. I want to be corrected. I want to grow. I want to improve my perspective and understanding. And so you're not threatened by new ideas that challenge your ideas. You want to, you want to examine those in light of testable evidence, uh, integrating scripture, science experience, how reality works, moving forward as you're persuaded, every person fully persuaded in their own mind, Romans 14. We want that. But if you have positions that will be destroyed by truth and you are not a lover of truth, then you have to silence those voices. And we see this happening. It's quite corrosive. Watch for it. It's not the method of God. Continuing with the quote, the Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent. We're asking the question. If, if our, we're comforted through the work of Jesus as our second Adam, as our, as our representative head, as, as, as our Savior who came and, and brought us the Word, made flesh, the truth, and then won the victory at the cross for us, if, if, if that is the remedy that heals us, then why is the Holy Spirit called the Comforter? The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent, and without this, the sacrifice of Christ would be of no avail. Pause and just ponder that. This one sentence alone exposes the corruption of penal substitution theology. The the Spirit was given as a regenerating agent. And without this, the sacrifice of Christ would be no avail. But penal substitution theology says... We have legal problem. We're in legal trouble. And God, the rules have been broken. Somebody has to uphold the integrity of God's law because God's law functions like human law. It's rules he makes up, and you have to hold accountability. And you have to punish rule-breaking. And therefore, somebody who is not guilty uh, has to pay the penalty because if the guilty pays it, well, the penalty is eternal death, and you're gone. So the only way for you not to be dead is some other person who is actually not guilty to be declared guilty and have the sin put on them, and then they get executed in your place, and then you get to have that penalty paid to your account and heaven, and you get to be declared legally righteous even though you're not. Do you understand? None of that requires a regenerating agent of the Holy Spirit. You can have all of that without that. But without the regenerating agency of the Holy Spirit, the sacrifice of Christ is of no avail. Because none of that is, is true. It's all fraudulent. It's all in the human law model. It's Design law, how reality works. We have a heart. See, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, God did not get changed. When Adam and Eve sinned, God's law did not get changed. When Adam and Eve sinned, their condition changed. They were now out of harmony with how God has actually designed life to operate. They're like a person underwater with, a, uh, with, with weights around their ankles. They're not dead yet. They've only been under for 40 seconds, but they're dead in trespass and sin. They're like a person who has just eaten a, a lethal dose of, of, of radiation. Po, po, what's that, uh, that poison that the Russians have used to assassinate people? You know what I'm talking about? Polydnium? Is that what it is? Yeah. Uh, they've eaten it. They're not dead yet, but dead man walking. We're dead in trespass and sin. We're out of harmony with how life works. Christ came to reveal truth to win us back to trust the one who has the remedy, and he procured the remedy that heals us, but that remedy now still needs application in us. If we don't participate, if we don't partake, if we aren't recreated, reborn, regenerated, have the heart circumcised, have the heart of stone removed, have the law written in the heart, if that doesn't happen then Christ's sacrifice is of no effect. It has to be made effectual. And so the Holy Spirit is the agency, the regenerating agency that takes the victory of Christ and reproduces it in us, actualizes it in us. And, and it's two phases. The Holy Spirit, Jesus is the member of the Godhead who operates in human history. Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus was the member of the Godhead who was the rock through which... Um, Israel drank. Find that in Corinthians. Jesus is the member of the Old Testament who came down and talked to Abraham. Jesus acts in history. He gives actual evidence 
of activity and operation and how he functions. The Holy Spirit. So think about those acts of history as evidences, points, dots, if you will. The Holy Spirit is the agency that comes along and connects the dots in your mind so you can be enlightened and see the picture. So he makes the truth the spirit of truth. He brings truth to your mind. You can comprehend it. And then when you're one to trust, the Holy Spirit then takes the actual character of Christ, the victory of Christ, and you get a new heart and right spirit with new motives that you did not personally develop because your our fallen motives are fear-ridden and selfish. When you have new motives to love and be altruistic, those are not originating with you. They're originating with Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is reproducing them in you. Continue with the quote. Without the Holy Spirit of truth, we would believe lies all the time. That's right. The power of evil has been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to this satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead who would come with no modified energy but with the fullness of divine power. Do you see why Satan wants to minimize the work of the Holy Spirit? Or to diminish your value of the Holy Spirit or your belief in the Holy Spirit? See, he, he, in Old Testament times, the story of the Old Testament is Adam sins, Genesis 3, right there in Eden, God promises a Savior will come. Adam, even though you sin, I love humanity. I love you and Eve, and I love my species human. I'm not going to surrender you to death. I will save you. I will send my son. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. The rest of the Old Testament, the entire focus of the Old Testament is coming Messiah. Satan working to stop it. God countering him to keep open the path for Messiah. That's why the focus and the attention is where it is. And it keeps narrowing at the flood where we're at the whole world. We don't know which family uh, the Messiah is coming from. So the whole world is, is, is a focus. And after the flood, we very quickly focus on Abraham's family. But then we very quickly focus on Jacob's family. But then we continue to narrow the focus down to just Judah. At the time of Christ, there was only Judah and Levi. The other ten are gone. We keep narrowing. That's the focus. And the nations that we focus on that come in, Assyria, Hittites, and so forth, the reason they come in is because they come into the story arc. They come into the story arc as they relate to Israel. That's why we're not hearing about China or the Incas or the Aztecs. It's not because God doesn't love them. It's because they're not uh, involved in the prime story arc coming Messiah. That's the message. That's the focus. And Jesus is, of course, the, the agency bringing all those data points, and the Holy Spirit is enlightening us to that. And so after he fails to stop the Messiah from coming, after he fails in temptations of Jesus, after Jesus succeeds in bringing the truth and achieving remedy, Satan's only strategy left to keep you from salvation is to interfere with the application of that remedy in your heart. And he has multiple ways to do that, get you to believe that God is more like him in character, and you worship a punishing, uh, fear-inducing God, and, and you practice those methods and value those same principles to get you to believe there is no God at all, that we just evolved, to, or to get you to believe there's no Holy Spirit, and you never want the third member of the Godhead in, in your heart because he doesn't even exist anyway. Look, finishing this quote. It is the Spirit that makes effectual... What has been wrought out by the world's redeemer? It is by the spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the spirit, we, the believers become partakers of the divine nature. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me by the spirit. Christ has given his spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. Do you see how God brings comfort? Real comfort. Comfort, are you comfort? Have you ever had times in your life when you were in fear, in guilt, and in shame? And then you came to experience God's grace in your life. And you were freed from the fear and the guilt and the shame. Were you comforted? 
So the healing progression starts right where the destruction started. Lies believe break the circle of love and trust, leading to that cascade. Then healing starts. Truth believed destroys lies and wins us back to trust. And in trust, then, we open the heart and God pours his love into our hearts. And in trust and love, rather than acts of sin, acts of selfishness, to protect self, we are now acts of service, acts of love, acts of altruism to others. And as we exercise acts of love for God and others, because we have love and trust in our hearts and no longer live to fear and selfishness, we grow in godliness and witness the kingdom. But it all starts with the truth about God. That's where the healing starts. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, in this process of being comforted, this process of coming to know God as Jesus revealed, and then opening your heart, experiencing his comfort of peace and the forgiveness of sins and, and the removal of guilt and shame, and then begin the, the journey with him, is that entire process fun? <laughs> or can it be agonizing and painful? It actually describes it as walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Go back and look at your Psalms. Psalms 23. It's not about, really about physical death. The whole Psalm is about conversion. Lord is my shepherd. I, I won't have need of anything. You know, he, he, he leads me uh, in the paths of righteousness for his name, character, sake. Path of righteousness is the path. He's going to restore my soul. Okay, so he's going to lead me a path of righteousness to glorify his name. And in that path, he's going to restore my soul. And even though I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, notice it's not the valley of death. It's the valley of the shadow of death. It's the valley where you feel like you're dying inside. And that's the place we are crucify this, the flesh. That's the place we die to sin. That's the place where self, Paul says, I die daily. That's that valley. And he, uh, but I will fear no evil. His rod and staff that comfort me. He anoints my head with oil, the oil of the Holy Spirit, which regenerates and renews me, prepares a table before me. And what, where do we end up dwelling? In the house of the Lord forever. That's what it's about. So this process can be agonizing and painful because once there is brokenness, there are no pain-free options. That's reality, folks. Once there is brokenness of any kind, there are no pain-free options. You got a broken leg? Don't touch it. Leave it alone. It hurts to move it. hurts to splint it. Just don't touch it. Okay, well, you're chronically in pain and disabled. Splint it, pin it, physical therapy it. There's pain in that process. You can't avoid pain once there's brokenness. Because we are all broken by sin and damaged, God's healing in the initial part particularly is a painful looking in the mirror and accepting our diagnosis. It hurts our human ego to admit our shortcomings. It's painful. Is it not? But if we walk that path, just like physical therapy with the leg, eventually the pain goes away and we have health again. Satan tricks the world with his suffering caused by sin. Sin causes suffering, causes pain. And he tricks the world with fear of more pain. And the brokenness in heart leads us to try and protect self in acts of self-centeredness, which only injure our relationships and injure us more, which incites more fear and greater distrust and inflames the, the, the hurt, and the cycle just continues to spiral down, and the mind is damaged. And this fear-driven me first of avoiding of, of, uh, of the uh, consequences of sin, denial, disorder, this leads to all of the evils in the world. All of the evils in the world are, are, are stemming out of this condition of fear, selfishness, that we're afraid to, to own, afraid to, to deal with, and so we try to medicate ourselves, make ourselves feel safe, make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And so all the evils, all the addictions are caused by people seeking to comfort themselves. 
All of them. And if you look at the 12 steps, read the 12 steps. The 12 steps are not primarily about avoiding a substance. They're about dealing with the brokenness in heart that causes pain. And when they work the 12 steps and deal with the internal pain, they don't need a, 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 a substance or other behaviors, addictive behaviors, gambling, sex, and so forth, that people use to try to comfort themselves. All human governments with their imposed laws and people seeking social justice through more laws and more punishments are driven by people who are hurt and afraid and wanting a society where they can feel safe. But they only end up hurt more people because all human governments are arbitrarily, and all human laws are arbitrarily written and arbitrarily enforced, and there's always somebody that isn't treated fairly. Whether they're innocents that are convicted, whether they're guilty that get off, whether the rules are applied here in one way and applied there in another way. Or just silly things. I don't know if you saw yesterday, the Supreme Court finally ruled that California cannot prevent houses of worship from meeting. Six to three ruling yesterday. They, they, uh, California, all houses of worship closed out there. Supreme Court ruled they can't do it. But they said they could limit it in various fashions, so they can only have 25% capacity, and they're not allowed to sing or chant. <laughs> not, not just in choir or congregation, folks. Now, here's the silliness of it. And this is where Neil Gorsuch uh, um, dissented. Uh, he, he actually voted for it, but he sent for this portion of it, the restriction on the singing, because it's all singing. And he said the state has given no compelling reason why even if you can spread a virus through group singing, why a soloist can't be behind a plexiglass wearing a mask hundreds of feet away from everyone else and sing for the worship. But that's, that's illegal too. Or even in another room with the door closed and have it piped in, it's illegal too. It's irrational. This is what happens with human rules. It becomes irrational and illogical. But people seek it because they want to feel safe. We've got to do that. We've got to be safe. It's their fear driving this, not intelligence, not how reality works. All vengeance-seeking is driven by people who are hurt and, and afraid and seek to comfort themselves by taking out the, the potential threats that have hurt them in the past. Whether that vengeance seeking is through the vigilante or through the justice system to make them pay. All totalitarianism, communism, socialism is fear driven people seeking to comfort themselves. All abusing spouses who abuse others are doing so because they, the abuser, is insecure and afraid and threatened and wanting to make themselves feel empowered. Make themselves feel more secure. All eating disorders are people who are filled with fear and insecurity trying to comfort themselves. The bingers with food, the restrictors with control. All cheating, lying, stealing, embezzling, toxic waste dumping is done by people afraid, insecure, seeking more wealth, more stuff, to comfort themselves and make them feel secure. All violence against others is done by people afraid, insecure, and seeking to comfort themselves. Understand, Satan uses fear and then his methods to make us feel safe to further corrupt hearts, families, societies. Understand the times in which we live. The four winds are being loosed. And the enemy goes around like a roaring lion. Lions' roars do not injure. Lions' roars incite fear. Do you hear the roaring in our society, in all the media platforms, like has never been heard in my lifetime? Ever. Fear, fear of all kinds whether it's fear of a pandemic, fear of global warming, fear of financial collapse, fear of political left, fear of political right, it doesn't matter. It's all fear-driven. And how do we deal with this kind of fear? What's the enemy want from us? 
He wants us to seek control, to make ourselves feel safe. And how are we going to make ourselves feel safe? By identifying the enemies within. The enemies within, the enemies who threaten us. We must send them to re-education camps. We must silence the voices. We must deplatform them. We must imprison them. We must find them. We must shut down their businesses. We must take their properties from them. Because no one can buy or sell, save him who has that mark. God's people must reject these methods. These methods of power over, coercion, intimidation, control, penal, legal, theological solutions. And we must worship our creator, him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and come back to understand his laws are design laws. And only in Jesus Christ and the work of the spirit in the heart can we be freed from fear. We must be reborn with a heart that loves God and loves others. Sunday's lesson, that was just Sabbath. We, wow, time goes by fast. Um, cause I got a bunch of fun stuff in the notes today, but let's, let's try to go. It says Isaiah 1, uh, four, uh, four, Isaiah 40, verse 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and tell her that her time of warfare is over, that her punishment is completed, for the Lord has made her pay double for all her sins. Or, that was the um, New English translation. Here is the New King James Version of the same verses. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and try and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. Now, the one, that her punishment is completed, for the Lord has made her pay double for all her sins. The other... Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Do they sound exactly the same to you? They mean the same thing? Well, the lesson takes the view of punishment. Does that surprise anyone? That God is punishing Israel. The lesson asks, their time of punishment has finally ended. What punishment was that? They answer. These are... There are many answers to this question. There was the punishment administered by Assyria, the rod of God's anger. Are you comforted by that? (laughs) This is another example of how one's biases, before one actually reads Scripture, impacts the way you read Scripture, what message you get from it. And I don't mean just the English scripture, the Hebrew and how it's translated. You see, there's a quite different translation there in the New English versus the New King James. It's quite different. If you go with the view of God's law works like human law, a system of rules that require and justice requires appropriate punishment, you read punishment. That makes sense. I mean, after all, think it through. If God's law does work like human law, then it's not fair and it's not just to let people break the law and just get away with it. you got to hold them accountable. It makes so much sense, doesn't it? If God's law works like human law, but that's the big lie. It doesn't. God's law are design laws. The laws upon which reality work. Notice the next verse, very next verse in, we just read 1 and 2 in chapter 40. Here's verse 3. See if this helps us figure this out. Verse 3, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. What? do all Christians essentially agree that verse is referring to? And they agree because the New Testament writers tell us that's what it refers to. It's hard to refute it if you're a Christian because the New Testament apostles tell us that's what it, and they use it. This is John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. Well, this is quite interesting. If verse 3 is is actually referencing John the Baptist and the coming Messiah, why is verse 1 and 2 about Old Testament Israel? How do we just jump? Everybody with me on the question there? Now, ultimately, what's the ultimate comfort that God has for you? Comfort, comfort ye my people is how it starts out in verse 1. And the ultimate comfort is, we've already talked about it, it's Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit bringing what Jesus has achieved into our hearts. But it's Jesus. He's the ultimate comfort. And verse 3 tells us, that the, the uh, um, one who uh, prepares the way for him is coming for the Messiah. So it's, the comfort is about Jesus. But verse 2 somehow has gotten 
us off into some type of construct of punishment of, of, of Israel. Is the message of the Old Testament primarily about God delivering Israel from nations around them, from human enemies, or is the message of the Old Testament, though real historic figures doing real historic stuff, the real message is not about those, those historical people, but the real message is about God and the coming Messiah. Mm-hmm. And all of those people are focused on because of how they enlighten us to the real message. And they really did historical stuff, but they also remember object lessons. We've, we, we won't go into all those examples today. We don't have time. And the Old Testament reveals the truth about God's character, his actions in history, how he acted in places and times, and we learn about God. The truth about sin, the truth that Satan is a destroyer, we, the, the truth about the coming Messiah. The Old Testament gives us the, 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 the story arc so we know what's really happening. Thus, the Old Testament is primarily a record of God working to fulfill his promise to bring the Messiah. With that in mind, do we understand Isaiah 41 and 2 differently than God punishing? Thoughts? Do we war against flesh and blood or against principalities and powers? God is comforting us by bringing Messiah to bring an end to the sin condition. to relieve us of our iniquity, our carnalness. Consider this quote from the Desire of Ages. No, I take that back. It's from Prophets and Kings 722. Prophets and Kings 722. And we go through a section. It's the last chapter in the book. And, 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 I, and I brought this in here because I really think in the times we're living in society today, this speaks to us today. In in the darkest days of her long conflict with evil, the church of God has been given revelations of the eternal purpose of Jehovah. His people have been permitted to look beyond the trials of the present to the triumphs of the future. When the warfare having been accomplished, the redeemed will enter into possession of the promised land. These visions of future glory, scenes pictured by the hand of God, should be dear to his church today. When the controversy of the ages is rapidly closing, is the controversy rapidly closing? Can you see the rapid closing events? Okay, good. And the promised blessing are soon to be realized in all their fullness. Many were the messages of comfort given to the church by the prophets of old. Comfort, comfort ye my people, was Isaiah's commission from God. And with the commission were given wonderful visions that have been the believer's hope and joy through all centuries. What's the ultimate cover given God's people? It's deliverance from sin. Uh, Earth made new, yeah. Uh, Clad in the armor of Christ's righteousness, the church is to enter upon her final conflict. She is to go forth into all the world, conquering and to conquer. I'm going to pause there. What is our armor? Clad in the armor of Christ's righteousness. What is our armor? Is that something that covers over a corrupt heart? What does it mean to be clad in the righteousness of Christ? What's it actually mean? It's a metaphor. What's it mean? Move away from the construct somehow. We as human beings can make ourselves better, rather to accept his love, his, his, his love. Oh, I love where you're going with that. And, and the same author writes in Christ's Object Lessons, page 311, that uh, talking about the robe of Christ's righteousness, woven in the loom of heaven, without one thread of human devising. It says, when we... Uh, when we um, uh, are brought into unity with him, our thoughts become united with his thoughts. Our will is merged with his will. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered in the robe of his righteousness. So, so the robe, this armor of Christ's righteousness, is not some external thing that covers over a corrupt heart and mind. It is actually what we've already talked about, the Holy Spirit bringing into our hearts and minds the righteousness of Christ, that we have new hearts and right spirits, the law written on the heart and mind, new motives, that we have died to fear and selfishness, we live to love uh, for God and others. That's what it means to be armed with 
his righteousness, to be have his armor, have new new character of our own, new motives. I love that. It's good. Okay. So, so uh, clad in the armor of Christ's righteousness, the church is entered in her, uh, enters upon her final conflict, conquering to conquer. Understand the big trap of Satan moving forward. The big trap of Satan is God's law works like human law, therefore justice is achieved through more law and more punishment. Therefore, the beast rises not to do injustice. The beast will rise to do justice. You can call whatever justice you think that you're going to, it's going to, whatever justice that is needed to pull you into the beast, it will, it will uh, promote that. Whether it's environmental justice, whether it's racial justice, whether it's economic justice, so there are not haves and haves nots, whether it's, uh, um, uh, whatever justice you think, it's going to come promoting the justice. But it's going to do it by passing more laws and restricting more freedoms and punishing more people who don't keep the law. That's the way you get justice under the human law model. But we are conquering to conquer with the righteousness of Christ. You cannot get more love by threatening to punish people who don't love you. You cannot get more love by passing laws and imprisoning people who don't love you. You can't do it. And so understand the human model, Satan's kingdoms, only cause division, corruption, and ongoing conflict and war back and forth. It never ends. That's why nation is constantly warring against nation, and people are constantly warring against people, because whichever people's in power pass their laws of what they think is just, but they hurt somebody else who doesn't agree with their view, and those people then fight to get their political power up and so that they can take control back, and then they can fight with their new laws. And, and you see this happening constantly, and it never ends. We are going to conquer because we're going to win hearts and minds to Jesus Christ, and every person will love every person more than self. Dark, dark, the darkest hour of the church's struggle with the powers of evil is that which immediately precedes the, the day of her final deliverance. The darkest hour wasn't the dark ages. The darkest hour is right on, right before us. But none who trust in God need fear. When the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall, God will be to his church a refuge from the storm. We do not need to fear if we have embraced the law of God in our hearts, if we have rejected the imperial law systems of the world. If we refuse to follow where fear leads in self-defensiveness and self-coping, if we've hidden our lives with Christ, if we've died to self and trust him with the outcomes. Continuing on. In that day, only the righteous are promised deliverance. Why? Deliverance from what? From sin. From death. And notice this next text, which he quotes from Isaiah, right after only the righteous are promised deliverance. Notice the very next text. Isaiah 33, 14, 16. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with the everlasting burning? Next verse. He who walks righteously and keeps his hands away from murder, bribe, and extortion. What's being described? Why are they delivered, the righteous that is, because what is this fire? Our God is a consuming fire. This is the fire of God's life-giving glory, the fires of infinite love and infinite truth that will bathe the entire planet. And only those who love truth and love love and have been renewed will, will 
celebrate and live there. All those who love lies and coercion and, and corruption and selfishness, love hurts them. Truth they don't want, they deny, they distort, they blame. They don't own, they haven't been changed. They hate truth and, and love. Just watch what's happening right now. I'm going to tell you, even our medical societies you can't trust anymore. And you should understand when you hear all the, the medical jargon coming out from scientists. Genesis 6, what do you think the scientists were saying about Noah? He was crazy. We've never seen rain. There's no evidence of that. Do you think the, the, uh, the, the journals of the world and pick, I don't get, Pediatric journals, psychiatric journals, General American Medical Association, uh, surgical journals, uh, obstetric journals, journals of psychology, journals of anything. Do you think that the boards that run those journals are by people who believe in God? Or all of academia is controlled by people who believe in evolution and a godless worldview? Okay, what does that do to the mind? Do you filter evidence in different ways when you've rejected that there isn't even a God and, and anything like God? They claim that they're objective. They only follow evidence while they deny all the evidence of God's existence, which is overwhelming at this point. I can tell you I've had a few conversations with evolutionary believing God, uh, uh, people who don't believe in God, and when we sit down and actually go through the evidence, they cannot refute the evidence of, of design and creator. They can't. It's overwhelming, and they become silenced. But they still won't give up their belief. They have no naturalistic explanation for the coded information in DNA that all life requires. All life requires not just physical matter, not just energy. It requires coded information. Not the molecules, you understand. Not the letters of the alphabet. But the letters of the alphabet have to range in a way that confer and code information. If you don't have that coded information, you can't have life. Show me any random process that can write a book. It requires an intelligence. They all know it. They won't embrace it. So they live in a world of denial of truth. And then they write articles of all kinds that are corrupt because they're all slanted away from how reality actually works. And so you will see right now uh, around the whole COVID thing, there's so much misinformation in the scientific literature. There, there, is, uh, there was fraudulent. Uh, last week I talked about two articles, in the, one in the Lancet and the New England Journal, that were completely fraudulent and had to be retracted, but they were used by political um, machines to make everyone terrified. But they were completely fabricated. How'd they get past the editorial boards? Just like them. Exactly. They weren't being scientific. They weren't actually looking at evidence. The scientists are going to come along and they're going to endorse and promote and understand in our world today, scientists are the priests of today. The priests of, of a godless world are the scientists. They're the ones they look to for the worldview, the philosophy, the belief system. And it's corrupt. It's godless. I've got to finish this quote. <laughs> In that day, only the righteous are promised deliverance. And I already read that, uh, that Isaiah passage. Okay. As, and as the prophet beholds the Lord of glory descending from heaven and all the holy angels to gather the remnant church from among the nations of the earth, he hears the waiting ones unite in an exultant cry. Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. That's why we're delivered. Are you looking forward to that day? It's coming. In the visions of the prophets, those who have tri triumphed over sin and the grave are now seen happy in the presence of their maker, talking freely with him as man talked with God in the beginning. Oh, man, think that through. Uh, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, oh, there's comfort, Jerusalem, and cry, listen where we're going here, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received the Lord's hand from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's that same passage we started with just a moment ago. But notice the context we're in now. 
Notice the context of this author puts, speak comfort or comfort my people, that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord double for all her sin. Does this sound like punishment to you? This is not punishment. Not at all. The author applies the text to the events that are happening at the end of it. Again, what we said, this is not about historic ancient Israel. This is about the church of God, the saved of all time. And they're receiving double punishment from the Lord here? Is that how it's applied? What are they receiving double? They're receiving double blessing. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And thus, all the righteous through all time who have surrendered to Jesus have the first removal of the guilt and the shame and the fear, and we have peace while we're still in this temporal life. But we get a double portion because we also get glorification, and we get removed eventually from the world of sin itself, and we have eternal life. We get double I mean, it's just great enough to be free of the fear and the guilt and the shame, isn't it? But that's not where he leaves us. Continuing on. As the prophet beholds the redeemed dwelling in the city of God, free from sin and all marks of the curse, in rapture he exclaims, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for her joy, for joy with her. There, every power will be developed. Every capacity and capability increased. The grandest enterprises will be carried forward. The loftiest aspirations will be reached. The highest ambitions realized. And still, there will appear new heights to surmount. New wonders to admire. New truths to comprehend. Fresh objects to study to call forth the powers of body and mind and soul. Isn't that exciting? For all eternity, God's infinite, we're finite. We will continue to advance, develop, and grow in his love, in his wisdom, in in knowledge of his universe. It never ends. It's exciting for those who love the truth. Continuing on. To those who are standing on the verge of their... to, To those of us who are standing on the verge of their fulfillment... Do you understand that's It's talking to you and me. We're on the verge of this. Of what deep moment... What living interest are these delineations of the things to come? Events for which, since our first parents turned their steps from Eden, God's children have watched and waited, longed and prayed. Fellow pilgrim, we are still amid the shadows and turmoil of the earthly activities, but soon our Savior is to appear and bring deliverance and rest. Let us by faith behold the blessed hereafter as pictured by the hand of God. He who died for the sins of the world is opening wide the gates of paradise to all who believe in him. Soon the battle will have been fought, the victory won. Soon we shall see him who in, in whose hope we have eternal life centered. And almost done. Look up, look up, and let your faith continually increase. Yes, look up, fix your eyes on Christ. Don't look down. Don't focus on the news. Don't focus on the trials on the world systems and the injustices happening on the world methods. Look up. Fix your eyes on Christ. Let this faith guide you along the narrow path that leads to the gates of the city, to the great beyond, the wide, unbounded future of glory. That that is for the redeemed. The nations of the saved, now I just love this, the nations of the saved will know no law than the law of heaven. No law. Understand, the nation, no law, the saved will, will not know. Remember, this is life eternal that you might, that they might know you. The, 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 the nation will not know. The nations of the saved will not know. They will not be intimate with. They will not have written on their hearts the imposed law, the coercive forms of justice, the seeking of punishment of others. They will not have the beastly, worldly kingdoms of law written on their hearts. They won't know it. They will have God's law written on their hearts. That's what they will know. They will be marked in their foreheads, the seal of God, whereas the world will be marked in their hands and their foreheads as embracing that imperial legal fraud. The Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and he will make 
her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. So how does the Lord comfort? By removing all defects from his design, by removing sin, by restoring in us his design law for life, and by recreating the earth new. That's how he comforts. Okay, Monday's lesson. Uh, Maybe I'll make a point or two. I'm going to skip Monday's lesson, uh, Tuesday's lesson. Tuesday's lesson points out from Isaiah 40, verse 9, that the herald here is feminine in the, in the Hebrew. And the feminine, they point out that God always has had male and female uh, heralds. The heralds here in Isaiah are both male and female. Simeon and Anna in the temple that recognized the birth of Jesus, male and female. Mary Magdala, the first to announce the resurrection, followed by the men who did it. And so they make the point that God has always used both men and women to uh, advance his cause. Do you understand what this actually means? Is there any significance to it? I'm going really fast because we're already over time. I just want to make a couple points about this. When God completed creation week, what was the crowning act of creation? Sabbath was rest. So the act act of creation. It was a woman. Well, we knew that. (laughs) It was a woman. Uh, Understand, there's a great corruption. Adam was made, and he was not good. He was perfect, but it was not yet good. It wasn't good. It wasn't good. Until Eve was made. Absolutely. Because in God's design, Adam is incomplete. Adam is only half of a human being. Eve is only half of a human being. In God's design, Adam and Eve united. Eve was his second self. Eve was taken from his side, not to rule over, not to be ruled by, a co-equal, a partner, to enter into God-like love. Adam alone, as a singularity, cannot enter into God-like love. God-like love is operational. He needed a partner that he could love as himself. Eve was the crowning act of that, that creative process. Fulfilling and complete, and understand the two together, the two together... Achieve more than either one alone. Together they bring forth new life. Together they can know what self-sacrificial love is. Together they know the intimacy of what God's design for marriage is. They have so many depths of growth that they can have together they can never have alone. In God's design. Understand there's a corruption. Satan doesn't want God's design to be realized. So he's corrupted humanity with this fraudulent idea that women are somehow subordinate to men. Not equal. Subordinate. And they, and, and, and they turn, it takes, just like the devil always does, he turns truth backwards. Saying like, well, she was made after him, therefore he's the head. Well, if you look at the progression of creation week, did things progress from um, inferior to superior or from superior to inferior? Which way did creation week progress? The last made was superior. Okay? Adam was superior to the animals. Eve was made as the crowning of completion of humankind. Oh, well, Adam was taken out of dirt. <laughs> Eve was made out of living, sinless matter a more superior substance. This is reality. Okay? Satan doesn't like it. Oh, well, but, but, but Adam was, the, was to be the leader. He was to lead, okay? Well, if that was so true, how come Adam failed to be able to lead in a sinless world and he ended up following the leader? It's even worse than that after he Right. And, and that's, and this is the point. Well, God pronounced that, that, okay, maybe in Eden is all to be co-equals and everything, but after sin in the world we live today, man is supposed to rule over. No. God did not give a new pattern for living. God announced, diagnosed, pronounced, if you will, um, the reality of the new condition. You have replaced love, other-centered, my perfect design uh, of self-sacrifice with fear and selfishness, Eve and Adam. So here's your new reality, Eve. You're going to live in fear, and you're going to seek someone stronger than you to protect you. 
And Adam? Adam's going to rule over you. That's the reality of what fear and selfishness does in relationships. And if you look at the history of the hunter-gatherers and other societies, women sought a strong man to protect them. And the men tended to dominate and control the women. It's not God's design. It's a perversion. And that's why Jesus in the New Testament teaches that when we come back and have the law written on our heart, then the husband treats his wife like Christ treats the church, beating her whenever she's out of line. (laughs) No. Sacrificing himself for her. Godly leadership and Christ-like leadership is to love your wife as your own body, Paul says. This is the reality. And so, any subordination of women in any fashion to diminish them beneath the power, authority, rule of man or men is part of Satan's kingdom. It's a perversion of God's design. But let me complete. Any subordination of men in any fashion to diminish them beneath the power, authority, and rule of women is part of Satan's kingdom and is a perversion of God's design. There is to be no subordination. It's co-equal. Perfect partnership of love. Authority over, rising up over to rule over is Satan's method. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love, for your watch care, for your perfect self-sacrifice, for for Jesus' perfect revelation of your methods of rulership, who, even though in his nature is equal and fully God, did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself into the form of a servant all the way to the cross, sacrificing himself to lift up us and restore us to life and righteousness. We ask for your spirit to be poured out and make effectual in our life the victory of Christ, the truth that he's brought, dispel the lies and distortions, and write your law of love into our hearts and minds that we can not only love you, not only love our families and our neighbors, but that we can love our enemies. We know that kind of love we don't have in our hearts, Lord. We want to punish our enemies. But we recognize that as part of the infection, and we ask that you'll purge it and restore us, that we can be uh, covered with your armor, the righteousness of Christ, so that we can go out and do battle with the sword of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. We pray in your holy name. Amen.